This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga and in this episode we have a very special guest. We have Owen Rask, the founder of The Rask Group. Welcome, Owen. Thanks for having me, Dev. Really appreciate you inviting me on the show. Now, Owen, uh, I've been a follower of Owen for a number of years now and um, really from a financial literacy point of view. And I think he does, he's an educator, he's a business owner, he does podcasting. There's so many things that he does. So I'm really keen to pick his brain about some of the you know basics of financial literacy and investing and also some about business valuation as well. Owen, you're ready to go. Absolutely, man. Let's get started. Now, if you have any specific questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or on Facebook. And remember the three main aims of this podcast and channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. So, Owen, you do so many things, and I've actually been a follower. One of my medical mates actually introduced me to your podcasting uh, world, and he actually now works with me. So, shout out to him if he's listening. And he said, why don't you have a listen to this podcast? This is a while ago. And I said, okay, well, give it a shot. And, and I particularly listened to your financial podcast called the Australian Finance Podcast and also the Australian Investors Podcast. So you do so many different things. So perhaps just give us a bit of an introduction as to how you got started and, and where you are today. Sure, mate. Yeah. So uh, once again, I really appreciate the invite. I, um, I don't come from a finance background or family or even a white collar family. So my background's um, in blue collar, grew up on a farm. But our business, just generally speaking, encompasses all different types of multimedia. So if you think about uh, whether you're reading news or ASX company updates, whether you want to learn about personal finance and budgeting, right through to like the hardcore deep dives on investing and valuation and those types of things, you can come to Rask and you will find a home that is hopefully as independent as we can be and impartial to a lot of the things. But importantly, long-term focused and optimistic uh, is how we try and deliver every piece of information. Obviously, sometimes it's cautiously optimistic, but for the most part, optimistic. Right. And your your background, when I sort of read up on your bio, you actually worked for Motley Fool and uh, another company, which I haven't really heard of, called Zenith Investment Partners. So your primary motivation to start RASC was it more to sort of, you know, deliver financial education and then that sort of branched out into all these other avenues of doing that? Yeah, so um, yeah, I grew up in Melbourne's outer east. Um, I spent time between my family farm, which was about 10 acres. It's not as glamorous as it sounds. was um, up in the Dandenong Ranges, just bordering on the Yarra Valley. And my my family heritage is actually Holocaust survivors. And so we have, like, we had a big family contingent in uh, Dandenong, which for those people who don't know in Dandenong, which is Melbourne's, like, southeast, is, like, traditionally quite a lower socioeconomic area. So I had, like, these two worlds that I was constantly bouncing between. But, um, yeah, I, I ended up um, starting RASC ultimately because of, I guess, a lot of insecurity about money, a lot of anxiety I think I've said it before that the reason I started RASC and the reason that it is what it is today is from that insecurity and from that anxiety. And um, we do these things regularly called uh, RASC treats, which is just a play on retreat, where we go to as a team, just a place where we can kind of switch off and just talk about our, our company, our business, our vision. And one of the things that we do there is we just make a five-minute presentation on a topic that can't be related to finance. And so we have people talk about the world of bees, um, chimpanzees, 
how to respond to a snake bite, just totally random stuff. And it's a chance for everyone to kind of be vulnerable and introduce themselves. And one of the things that I spoke about was how my anxiety actually gave birth to the company. But if we just back up a little bit, out of school, like I had a lot of insecurity about money, which I mentioned. And I think for the most part, I was just trying to run away from a lot of the issues that were at home with a broken family and whatever. And um, one of the things that I ended up doing after school, which not a lot of people know about, is I so is I got into this Special Forces Direct Recruitment Scheme, which is a it's obviously with the Australian Defence Force, and it's the only pathway to the Special Forces from civilian life. So I was lucky enough to get into that. And had it not probably been for my partner, now I probably would have stayed in that life and become a commando in the ADF. But I came back and I was pretty lost with what I wanted to do after the army. So I studied social science, economics, technology, all in my undergrad. So I had this kind of like well-rounded education, like a classical education, you could say. Um, Not through, like it was just through, I guess, accident, but um, it turned out to be a fantastic way to think about investing. Uh, But I began work with The Motley Fool basically when I got back from the ADF, uh, just in a part-time capacity as a contractor. was there for five years. And then I, working remotely, Something about working remotely when you're 20 years old up until about 23, it kind of, you. even though The Motley Fool was a brilliant place to work and I was, it was so fortunate to get involved there, they were voted the number one place in the world to work under 500 employees two years in a row. That's incredible, right? How lucky am I? I still felt like that there was more to it. Like there had to be more to the world of investing uh, than what I was talking about at The Motley Fool, which was like long-term investing companies and being surrounded by so many optimistic people. Like the news is always so negative. How can these people be so optimistic? And this surely is like a fool's errand, no pun intended. So I ended up working for a company called Zenith Investment Partners for a brief while. And if you think about what The Motley Fool does, where it entertains and engages direct investors in the stock market, it's probably the biggest in Australia still. Zenith is the, what The Motley Fool is, but to financial advisors. So Zenith is the the peak, again, no pun intended, the peak research house for financial advisors and fund managers. So if you are a fund manager and you want to get a, a financial advisor to invest in you, most of the time those financial advisors require a stamp from Zenith Investment Partners or their competitors like Lonsec. So I was basically the gatekeeper as an analyst at Zenith to review fund managers and make a judgment call. And now if you think about the abstraction here, what's going on is effectively you go from analyzing companies or stocks to analyzing the people who analyze the stocks. So a whole different element comes into it. It's not just quantitative uh, anymore. It's also qualitative. Like what's the person's incentive? How do they speak? Are they driven? Are they motivated? If so, by what? Uh, And then you present that case to an investment committee at, at Zenith And it goes through this rigorous process of trying to decide whether we should recommend or endorse, effectively endorse that fund manager. And so I took all of that, a long story short, and I saw the best of what the the financial profession was doing along with the best of what um, the Motley Fool and direct-to-investor like community was doing, and I combined them in RASC. So I thought, well, why does the industry get to have all this information about these high-quality investors that everyday people can't access. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And at the same time, I was growing increasingly frustrated with this idea that when you go to like the ComBank website or any of the bank websites and you click on the education tab, it's actually just education about product. In other words, marketing. So it's like an education about a home loan. It's an education about, I don't know, a fund, a managed fund, or education about financial advice when it's actually just selling And I was so frustrated with that. I just couldn't believe that our industry didn't really provide education on something that is so incredibly important to people. So I took what I knew from The Motley Fool and I took what I knew from Zenith and started doing education, pure education. So no conflicts, zero anything, alignment with anyone, and just started with a designer that I had uh, working with me at the time to create educational videos and through a bunch of trial and error from 2017 till today, we now have over 200,000 people that tune into the RAS network. We have numerous arms. We have an education initiative, which I'm sure we can get to. But that's my long-winded, <laughs> I guess, backstory, Devin. I'm happy to answer any questions or continue on. Yeah, so that sounds really interesting. You've had a very interesting sort of, you know, I suppose, start to your career. Uh, yeah, the, the special forces bit, uh, yeah, I sort of 
haven't really come across in your bio. So that that was an interesting um, background uh, information there. So uh, are you a financial advisor? Like if can people actually come to you for financial advice or are you sort of not really into that space uh, from a client face-to-face relationship uh, phase? So do you do any of that sort of stuff? There are a lot of what you would say clients walking through our office because we share an office. But um, I, I qualified as a financial advisor uh, when I graduated uni because I did ended up doing a couple of master's degrees and whatever. And um, I also did like applied finance and started the CFA program and did all that while starting the business. And um, the thing that I recognized at the time was that a lot of financial professionals, this is the crazy thing about our industry, Dev, is that a lot of the finance professionals are actually financially illiterate. So the people who do the research on the companies oftentimes don't know how to budget. And the people who teach budgeting don't know how to invest. And that's because the fields of finance are taught in almost these discrete silos where if you learn about applied finance, which is more the investing side, you don't learn about financial planning. And if you learn about financial planning, you're often not an expert in investing. And it's kind of crazy to think. Um, and the, the, the best, I guess, anecdote of this is when someone comes to you and they say, oh, you're in finance, can you do my tax return? And you're like, oh, no, that's about three hallways away in the second door down the road. Um, so I re- recognized early on that if I was to study and teach investing, I also needed to understand finance and financial planning. Because if you think about it, the biggest asset that most of us will have, which I'm sure we can talk about, is superannuation. And so that's an investing product. But it's actually joined at the hip to personal finance because it's basically the backbone of our wealth creation. And so you have to understand both of those elements. And so I I graduated with a master's degree in financial planning and a master's degree in applied finance for that very reason. And I recognized that after I got my financial planning ticket that there was obviously regulation coming. So I can't call myself a financial planner today, Dev, because I didn't continue on with that education. And the reason is not because I didn't want to, I actually would love to. But one of the things I, I, I wanted to get across is that even if I did pro bono work two days a week as a financial planner, I could probably only help 100 families a year through that work, right? So I recognize that there's got to be this middle ground where we can educate people at scale and leave the biggest possible impact on the world without, you know, stepping away from finance and becoming like a coach or something like that. Like we needed to be able to do that. And general advice, which is what we do now, is the way that we operate. So we give education around investing concepts. But I think in listening to some of your recent episodes and and speaking with you previously, I know that you have a lot of people that listen to this show that are what we would call high net worth individuals that have big incomes and um, big portfolios. And so we have that too on our podcasts, in fact, thousands of them. And um, they still can come to us and get financial planning advice because we have partnerships. Similar to My Millennial Money, we have partnerships with financial planners that we kind of vet on the way through, as well as like mortgage brokers and all those. So we don't provide the service ourselves, but we find trusted partners to do it for us. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, the, 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 the quote about the impact really is uh, resonating because I sort of thought about it myself. I sort of said, well, if I did, if I saw a patient, you know, 20 patients a day, I have impact on 20 people, maybe 80 people if each of those patients have three family members. But I, I take great satisfaction in hopefully, fingers crossed, having a wider impact amongst my, um, you know, colleagues in the medical world and the nursing world and healthcare world. And now we sort of have other other professions listening in as well. And that impact is far more wide reaching through a podcast than what I could ever do um, as a doctor seeing a patient. Yeah, well said. That's really interesting. Now about RASC, let's talk a little bit about RASC. There are three main arms, I think. I think there's the education arm, you've got the media arm, which is your YouTube and your and your sort of podcasting uh, platforms and you got the RAS core, I think, which which might be sort of the well, sort of associated with the hardcore sort of investors. Can you tell us a little bit about each of these arms and what their function is? Yeah, sure. So when I set out to think about uh, the company overall, is I thought like what are the, what are the foundations of financial literacy? And I mean, there are many of them, but if we just take 
like the education. People need to be informed. They need to get lifelong learning. The old parable is like teach a man to fish, uh, feed him for a lifetime, right? So, um, so we wanted to be able to do that. Uh, but obviously, early in our journey, we recognised that just providing pure financial education is very hard commercially. So, if you wanted, to, so if I, for example, wanted to create like a video series or some educational courses, oftentimes, if you were trying to sell them to superannuation funds or to financial advisors to say, "Here's like conflict-free education, you can give this to your clients or whatever," um, they would want a white label. They want to put their own voice on it and put some marketing into into it to get the ROI. So. I recognize that we needed another way to provide education at scale, but basically now we've done that. We can provide mostly free education on our education, RASC education platform, and our mission is to get to 100,000 students. Now, you might be thinking like, well, why is it free? How do you do that? And basically what happens is the, 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 the economics of it is actually quite stark. Uh, we make on average $4 per student that we enroll. Uh, which is nothing, right? And that comes from a few students wanting to go deeper and deeper and deeper in their financial investment education, and then most people not paying a cent. And so our mission is to get to 100,000 students in the RASC education platform, and we do that through partnerships. For example, we do all of the Equity Mates community courses. We do courses with the Australian Shareholders Association. Uh, we do courses, one coming out as this podcast goes to air, which is um, Investing with Queenie, who's Australia's biggest Finfluencer. Uh, so we have all of these educational partnerships that help us bring people into the ecosystem and drive that message home that people should and can get access to financial education for free or mostly for free. The second thing is that we have a media business, which is primarily driven by podcasts, but for the most part, it's actually just everything. So we do print, we do podcasts, we do videos like on YouTube, as you said, we do uh, basically everything. And here we get about 150 to 200,000 either viewers or listeners of our podcasts. And we also get um, about 100,000 readers of our articles. And so if you think about where people should get trusted information on investing or financial concepts, um, it's probably the government organizations like Money Smart, ASIC, ATO first, but then you want uh, organizations that break down the jargon and that's kind of where we sit there for information. And finally, um, in our RAS core business, this is this has taken a few steps over the, over the years, but uh, in a different direction. We originally started this as more like value investing principles and how to value companies and finding the best companies. Like I ran a team of analysts, brilliant analysts that worked with me. Um, but more and more, we've transitioned that towards ETFs and, and low cost investing because one of the things that happens, Dev, is that as your audience grows in size, the bell curve stays the same. But what happens is there's more people under the bell curve. So if you have a thousand people, uh, say like a thousand members in your investment research service and in the tails, you might have five people. So five people get a really bad experience. Five people get a really good experience. The problem is as you scale that and you go to a hundred thousand, well, maybe there's thousands of people towards the tail and there's thousands of people towards the other tail. And as that gets bigger, your impact becomes more profound so you can have more negative consequences and more positive. But if you move further to the average, as in like towards passive investing, low costs, uh, recommending people invest in managed funds as opposed to direct stocks for the core of their wealth, the chances of us having a negative impact is very low. And so we've, we've transitioned it away from direct stocks towards more ETFs. And we say to people, we want to help you manage your core wealth. So ETFs, managed funds, uh, LICs, listed investment companies. And sure, we'll give you information about companies, but we don't want you to, we don't want you to invest all of your money in that. So we say to people, probably like a happy medium for a lot of people to scratch their itch of value investing is probably like 80% in your core portfolio and then 20% in the stocks or the the cryptocurrencies or the speculations that you want to take bets on. Uh, And that way we find with people, they can make the best, I guess, call for themselves, both in terms of the intellectual curiosity of direct stock investing, while also making sure they've got a, a pretty bulletproof plan B, which is a core portfolio. So that's how the, the three pillars come together. I'm so glad you asked me questions about this, Deb. I've never been asked about this because most of the time people are overwhelmed by what we do because we do so much. People don't know where to start or which thread to pull on. But for the most part, those are our three pillars, education, news and information, 
uh, and our investment research. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of learned quite a bit from your website. There's a lot of information there. And, you know, I had to visit it numerous times to actually sort of break down all that information. So certainly lots of plenty of free content as well, which surprised me. And, and people ask me this all the time. I mean, even with my podcast, and they say, why do you do it for free? Like, what do you get out of it? Well, you know, I enjoy talking about money and I enjoy generally, you know, learning about principles. And when I talk about it, I'll learn about stuff as well. So there's no real downside. It's really nice to see that I can, you know, that, that you're offering free courses because, you know, it's it's no secret to get, you know, financial planning or official sort of advice is not cheap in Australia. But, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that education, and doesn't matter what education you do, can be finance and economics, health, whatever it is, I fundamentally believe that people should have access to information at the lowest cost possible, if not free. And it's nice to be able to, you know, have someone like yourself on board to do that with written content, podcasting content, video content. So that's great. Let's talk a little bit about investment philosophy, moving away from RASC, you know, your own sort of personal investment philosophy. You did mention in your sort of education arm, you're sort of moving away from sort of direct stock investments into more ETFs and index funds. And for those of you that know me, I'm like the biggest geek when it comes to index funds. I don't do any direct stock investments. I don't have a itch. I don't want to scratch it. I don't want to know about it. I'm too boring. So what's Owen's investment philosophy um, in your personal life? Is it sort of very similar or do you sort of have that sort of core and satellite portfolio approach? Or Yeah, so I do use a core and satellite approach. But um, I would probably differ from your statement there, knowing what you just said, uh, taking that on face value, um, in that mine is probably a little bit more technical than that. So um, if, I've, if I had to choose what everyone listening to this could do between active or passive, I would say passive, but we don't have to make that choice. I think people in finance often present you with false choices. Do you want dividends or do you want growth? Do you want high quality or low quality? Do you want cheaper, expensive stocks? Do you want active or passive? And the reality is you do not have to choose any one of those things. And so you can have them all. And at the end of the day, um, I firmly believe that there are times when active management probabilistically should outperform uh, passive management. And I think it's important to take in context too that over the past 20 to 30 years, when a lot of this financial literacy has boomed, we've had falling interest rates. And so basically what that has meant is that like a lot of the investment classes like property or shares have benefited artificially from lower lower interest rates. And I don't want to get too geeky, but what it basically means is like long duration assets, so long dated assets like shares or bonds or property have increased in value and people felt like they were mastering investing even though um, they're not doing necessarily anything. Um, I think Morgan Housel said something to the effect of the best investment strategy is to to be born during a 30-year declining interest rate environment. But for my investment philosophy, I basically say that the core of my portfolio is going to be low cost and diversified. Uh, and most of the time that's passive. But I'll give you an example of one investment that we have that's active inside our core portfolios at, at Rascore. It's just, um, the Fidelity Global Emerging Markets Fund. So people mistakenly think that this is an ETF. But if you look at the ticker symbol for FMEX or the name for that ticker symbol, you'll find it in your brokerage account. It's actually an actively managed fund of 40 stocks or so from emerging markets. And one of the reasons that we choose to go active management in emerging markets and one of the reason why we see them out, active funds outperforming is the opacity and lack of transparency in emerging markets where regulatory regimes aren't very clear, where there may be fraudulent or governance issues. And so what we see where in those markets where there's information asymmetry is that active managers will outperform. Similarly, in small cap investing, which is something that I do with a passion, um, I find that there's no way to bring a passive investment vehicle into small caps. You could say global small caps, like with Vanguard's global smalls, which is fine, uh, but you're not going to get truly small cap companies in those types of ETFs or index funds. Uh, and so for most of us, the passive approach will probably win over time, but there are instances where passive can't go, uh, which I just mentioned, and those are in the public markets. One of the things, Dev, that I'm going to be focusing on, and I've made this public over the past 
few weeks is over the next 10 to 20 years, I have a strong belief that maybe even the majority of my portfolio and my company's portfolio will be in private companies or private equity. So buying whole private businesses or buying stakes in private companies, those are the things that I'll be looking to do because I think that's the next frontier for investment as an industry. You can see the big super funds have been doing this for years. Um, we're starting to see more and more SMSFs are using private investment companies uh, to invest in unlisted assets because the value is better. And basically what happens, Dev, is like, in my opinion, anywhere there is like a frontier. So if you think about like private markets, this is a market where it's kind of like you can go and buy your local laundromat or a supermarket or something like that. You're going to get, if you, if you work hard enough, you're going to get much better value. And sometimes the quality companies, they're just as quality as the publicly listed companies, but you'll get them cheaper simply because no one is going there. And over the next 10 to 20 years, I firmly believe that all of the big technology, uh, like financial technology companies, all of the big investment houses are going to move closer to that because this is an area where there's still information advantage, there's still analytical advantage even, uh, and there's very because there's very poor data. And so I intend to spend a lot of my time there. Day to day, um, and Glenn James will probably say something similar, I automate basically everything. So we automate our investments as a couple, my partner and I, but we also automate all of the investments that I do uh, for our company. So our company, the RAS Group, actually owns shares. It owns ETFs. It owns managed funds. And um, we basically take our operating business, which is our company that provides education, courses, memberships, sponsorships of podcasts, events, you know, all of the, the, the partner provi- uh, things that we provide. And we take all of our positive cash flow every month and we reinvest it. So every month, I take the profits of our company and I reinvest them into ETFs or other businesses or acquire, for example, other podcasts because I want our company to be basically the a tiny version of kind of like a Berkshire Hathaway or a Washington Hayesol Pattinson in that we have this positive cash flow float from our business and that funds long-term investments. And so that follows the core and satellite approach just like our members, just like I do, um, but we automate all of that. Uh, and that's basically like the overview. But I mean, I could go in any direction from here, Dev. One of the things I maybe add is when we buy individual stocks, we're not looking for what would be traditionally considered cheap stocks or value stocks. We are looking, if we invest in anything, we are looking for companies with a wide moat uh, or a competitive advantage. The company must be run by someone that has integrity. The business must be, well, not must be, but it's often reasonably priced. It's a business that we can understand. So we have a very narrow circle of competence. Uh, and if you combine all of those things, we should be able to find a business that's in a growing industry or has um, organic growth itself. And a lot of people get confused when, that, when I run through this checklist is, I'm thinking about this in a decade or more. I'm not thinking about it from like one or two years from now. I'm thinking about what makes a company so brilliant that it will still be here in 10 or 20 years. Um, because the longer you invest the less sensitivity there is to things like valuation. And if we look at the stock market as a whole, less than 5% of companies will actually outperform and create all of the value from the stock market. And so when we do buy individual stocks with a small part of our portfolio, we're not mucking around. We're not going for, I think this stock is statistically undervalued. We're not going for, um, like maybe in 12 months, there'll be a positive catalyst or something like that. We are going for the world's best companies or at least Australia's best companies wherever we can find them. So lots and lots of interesting discussion points. We'll just take a quick break. So we'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Right, that was going to be my next question. So in your personal portfolio or in the portfolio of Rask, so you, you sort of look globally, not, not just in Australia. Are you mainly looking at North America or mature markets? Or like you said, you're, you're also looking at emerging markets where you can sort of... Uh, sort of arbitrage the difference and and the lack of information and transparency, you can sort of profit off that? Absolutely. Uh, We look basically anywhere, but the portfolio that I follow and the portfolio that the company follows uh, is not one that we would recommend for everyone. So keep that in mind. But um, we follow a 90-10 portfolio. So we have 90% of our money in growth or growth alternative assets. And then we have 10% in defensive like bonds or cash and defensive alternatives, which would be like uh, unlisted property, for example, or private markets, some some private markets things. And so we we follow that investment philosophy wherever it takes us, basically. And uh, one of the things that happens, if you take a 10-year time horizon, Dev, one of the things that will happen is that the, the things that the finance industry worry about won't worry you anymore. So things like minimizing volatility, if you, if you think about the ups and downs of the stock market from one day to the next, from one year to the next, from one five-year period to the next, what we find is that the finance industry is obsessed with this idea of volatility because, and the single reason is this, because people hate uncertainty. And what we find with people that do 100% index fund or 100% passive portfolios is that their stocks will fall and they will freak out their bonds will fall and they will freak out. And so the behavioral element is so strong that most people, I would dare say, I don't have statistical uh, like reference points around this, but I would say that most people that simply do a 100% index fund strategy without thinking about their portfolio, that's probably the key asterisk there, is they will get sh- shaken out. And we saw, for example, in the global financial crisis, um, we saw it in 2020, and we've seen it in 2022, actually, when basically all of the index funds fell. And so that's not like I don't want to be a champion of active or passive because we do both. We firmly do both. And most of my money is in index funds. But I would just say that like when we take an active approach, we want to take an active approach in places where we can find genuine long-term value that is not necessarily linked to volatility. So when I think about risk, I don't think about risk from a volatility perspective. I think about it from, will I reach my financial goal? And all of my financial goals are 10 or 20 years in in advance, with the exception of one, which is buying a farm. Um, I want to buy a farm in around about five years. And so anything of, say, like five years or less, there are only a few things that really matter, and that is um, saving as much money as you can, investing as much money as you can early on, because that's not really a long enough amount of time for money to compound. I mean, it can, but there is so much uncertainty into one three-year window that um, you may as well just guess um, and just throw like a pin the tail on the donkey kind of thing. Uh, so in terms of where we invest, we'll go anywhere to get the, the right exposure to fit that 90-10 portfolio. If we're looking at individual stocks, I'm fully aware, like I'm cognizant that the bigger the company and the bigger the, the, the kind of market that you're looking in, the more competitive that industry will be so and amongst analysts. So the, the chances of you finding undervaluated companies is very slim. The only way, for example, if you're looking in the S&P 500, which is America's top companies, I believe it's very hard to have a variant perception over one to three years. And if you look over five years, more than 50% of the returns that you achieve from individual stocks is actually driven by change in sentiment. So it's actually driven by like things like price earnings ratios going from five to 10. So just stretching the valuation rather than the company fundamentals. So there is one behavioral advantage 
in investing in large cap companies, which is time horizon. But for the most part, if your method of investing is like quantitative, you're not going to make a lot of money investing, I don't think, in North America. Same with Australian blue chips, like in the ASX 50, maybe in the ASX 200, you'll find opportunities or further down. And so all of this should be taken in context. If I stop ranting, get back to your question, is that 95% of my personal net wealth is in the company that I run. So I am extremely thick-skinned and able to tolerate volatility because I have a long-term horizon and most people aren't suited to that is probably what I'm getting at. And um, that's why the financial profession caters to those people. So just sticking to the theme of investment, and and you did mention about automation. I'm a a big fan of automation because um, otherwise I'll just forget and um, I know some people say that they like to, you know, manually invest every week or every every fortnight. I mean, it, it just wouldn't work for me. And I think majority of people will just life would happen and then they'll miss the investment opportunities and and then they'll just sort of miss the boat. So automation, I think out of all of the things that I do, I think automation is probably the single most important thing that I value so much that I don't have to worry about market volatility. I don't listen to the news very much. I don't watch TV very much at all. But um, really, really important that uh, the listeners sort of understand what Owen is saying, that even he, as a sophisticated, advanced, knowledge investor, automates his investments. So it, it's probably the number one thing that's advantageous. In terms of property, what's your view on property in Australia? Given that, I mean, you're a millennial. My understanding is you own your own home. So you've, you've, you've bought your house, which is a pretty big achievement anywhere in Australia, let alone Victoria. So congratulations. And I, I, think, you, I think you might have bought like in the last few years, if I'm not mistaken, following your podcast. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We bought the, uh, the day before stage four lockdowns in Victoria. What's your view on property in general? I mean, where I am, which is sort of in Melbourne East, I just don't see the crash that everyone's worried about and which kind of worries me because, you know, as a society, I think housing security is a really important thing. And it just really worries me that the home ownership is slowly but surely getting out of reach. Is that something that worries you? As a, as a young person and a, as an investor? Yeah, it, it does because it worries me from the perspective of inequality. We have so many poor taxes in society that people aren't aware of. For example, uh, let's say you want to go to Brighton Beach, which is in Victoria, or I imagine it's the same at Bondi in Sydney or wherever you are. Um, you probably pay $5, maybe $10 for parking your car there. And effectively what that does is it's like a, it's effectively a poor tax because it affects the poor people more than it does the wealthy people. And so I worry about all of these little things that we see in society that appear that seem innocuous at first, but eventually erode people's purchasing power and eventually leads to more inequality. I think one of the big things which people haven't really clued onto from that perspective is intergenerational wealth transfer. I think we have um, rules in Australia that basically make it too easy to pass a large sum of money onto the next generation. And co- simple compound interest or arithmetic will tell you that if you have $100 million and you earn 10% in your ETF, well, you're going to earn $10 million a year. But if you have $1,000, it's not nearly as much. And I think we need to, I, don't, I think capitalism is a beautiful thing. And I think that the way we operate in society is the optimal structure around the world. But I think capitalism needs guardrails, it needs bumper bars, it needs things to be monitored effectively. And I think one of the things that have got, has gotten out of hand is property because no one in parliament wants to see falling house prices for their own sake, but also because of lobby groups, while at the same time being able to put a roof over your head is so fundamentally important to our way of life that I, I, I just can't believe that we've got to this spot. Uh, now... Uh, it's easier for me to say now that I'm a homeowner and um, I I bought you know a property. I, I actually made a choice earlier on, Dev, in my early 20s. I could have bought a house when I was about 20 years old or maybe even oh, probably 20 years old because I'd worked my butt off and I'd saved a lot of money. But instead, I took my $100,000 and I started the business. And so 
Um, that was my choice because I believe that productive assets like companies are far better uh, investment if they go well than a property could ever be. That said, once you get bigger with your, you know, once your portfolio gets bigger, property is a fantastic wealth vehicle, even if it's just a holding vehicle, if you just park money in a property, pay the holding costs, and then hope to exit sometime in the future. But what I would say for investors, generally speaking, is that I don't think, I don't buy into a lot of the doom and gloom um, that say like Chris Joy or other the, the other so-called property economists would have us believe. I just don't think that that's a thing that people should be worried about if they're the masters of their own capital. So if you are not worried about the, the bank pulling the rug out from underneath you. I don't think you should be worried about fall, potentially falling house prices in the short term because it comes back to my volatility comment from earlier on that um, it's really only the long term that counts. and that's So that's not an issue for me. But what I would say is that to solve the crisis, the only thing that I can think of, if I just give my two cents and I'm not very knowledgeable in these matters, is that it comes back to supply and demand. A lot of the things that we do to try and solve the, the housing problem is just increased demand. We just give people stimulus and we think that that will somehow solve the problem. When building costs went up 30% in a single year. And so, you know, if we give people handouts, like I don't mean that in handouts, like as in like support them, I want to support people. But if we give them handouts that are directly tied to demand, we're not going to have a problem that reaches an equilibrium, if I use some economics jargon. We're going to just keep inflating prices. For example... The first home buyers grant, right? That might be effective for the first couple of weeks or months that it's brought in. But if, say, there's a ceiling on the first home buyers grant of $800,000, just for example, then all of the houses that we're going to sell for $750 will just go to $800. Um, and it just pushes up the barrier for the next generation or the next buyer that tries to come into the market. And I think the best thing that we can do uh, as a society is increase supply. And that means supporting builders, supporting the construction industry to get more throughput. One of the things that I think that we'll see emerge over the next 10 years, Dev, is this idea for build to rent. I'm not sure if you've come across that. But the idea is generally speaking that you could have like a superannuation fund, like let's say, for example, Host Plus or Australian Super or whatever super fund you can think of, is they'll build apartment buildings with a single intention of renting those apartments and that way you have a single landlord that controls whole complexes rather than a bunch of private landlords that buy into construction uh, as it's get as the apartments are getting built and rent those out um, and that way um, we can incentivize the biggest uh, capital allocators in the country who are looking for these opportunities by the way and we can use that to slowly bring or at least stabilize house prices so in summary not worried at all about falling house prices in fact, falling house prices are probably normal. Will I continue to invest in property? Yes, because I'll probably want to buy a farm in the next few years as well as keep my current home. And I just think that the it, it is a crisis for both renters and for first home buyers. And if you're looking for any help, please reach out to us at RASC. We have a free property course to help you understand how the property market moves and how to inspect properties. We have a, a property podcast similar to My Millennial Money um, and so we just try and educate people as best we can. And my only advice to first home buyers listening to this would be the best advice that I ever received was start saving for a house three years before you need to. And once you go to buy a house, expect to be there for seven years. So those are the two numbers. Three years before you need it, stay there for seven years. And if you think about that, you're more likely to be less panicked when you save and you'll give yourself, I guess, some credence and you'll feel you know, give yourself empathy if you like. And uh, if you have a seven-year time horizon, you probably won't buy an apartment. You'll probably buy a, a home. And that will probably be a better financial asset as well as a better lifestyle asset for you in the long term. Mm, yeah, well said. Yeah, it, it just to me, it just... It's just staggering what's what's happening in property in Australia, and and like you, I don't think it's going to go down over the long term. But I do worry because I think housing security, you know, you've got a young family, if you've got kids, you know, I think everyone deserves the right to come home to a safe and secure place, uh, have a roof over their head, and don't have to you know deal with having to move houses every couple of years due to rental crisis or landlord issues and all that sort of stuff. Now, before we take a break, one last question. Superannuation, you did mention that was the biggest sort of wealth tool that we have in our arm of tools in terms of building wealth. 
What's your view on the recent proposed changes for those people that end up having more than $3 million in their super account? Because what's interesting about the whole saga is that it affects 0.5% of the population, but it was sort of in the media cycle for a while and people are really worried. I got a lot of people sort of, you know, contacting me about um, concerns about that. What's your view on that about superannuation? Are you worried that it's going to be more taxes? Oh, yeah. I, I think that we can just expect more. Like if you think about a government cycle, it's four years or whatever, uh, and you think about superannuation, most of us have about 30 years before we touch it. Um, I, in one year, a few years ago, I can't remember which year it was, I think I counted 16 changes to superannuation or tax around superannuation, 16 changes in one year. And so I made a conscious decision quite a few years ago that although I would use superannuation uh, as a wealth vehicle and my employees will get paid above average superannuation contributions, I would not use it as my primary wealth vehicle uh, for this very reason. And so I think most financial advisors who had that kind of 10, maybe 20-year time horizon should have been giving you that advice to avoid overly relying or over-dependence on superannuation as a system because it's just a gigantic honeypot and we've got Winnie the Pooh every four years coming along and dipping their fingers in to try and take a little honey from it. And so I think that over time, the system is beautiful in terms of like it's dollar cost averaging for you. But over time, uh, I think what's going to happen is we're going to see an equilibrium between what's inside super and what's outside super, meaning that the benefits of investing in super will probably slowly come down towards a level where it's similar to investing in your own name. And I I think, I mean, there's a bunch of different things that come out of the recent news. You mentioned it's very small, I guess, size of the the cohort that it affects. Uh, It's very newsworthy. I think a lot of the so the basic way it goes is an industry report comes out, the media takes the most inflated or extreme view of that finding from that report, politicians react to that news, and then regulation is brought in that affects more people than previously thought, and they look like they're doing the right thing to save the budget. But at the end of the day, a lot of these things, in my opinion, are often incorrectly executed. Like I think it would make sense for me to just have a progressive tax rate on superannuation, just like we do with income, rather than a, or some sort of artificial level that also includes unrealized gains. In terms of like economic policy or tax policy or investment policy, I just find some of the things that we get proposed just absolutely bizarre. I'll give you an example. Like I think the the first home super saver scheme, if we're at the other end, which is where you could use superannuation, you could voluntarily put more money in and then you could get money out within a certain window to buy your first home. I think that's a, in theory, it's a great idea. Well, why don't we let them use super and you can get an assumed return for that. But also it's incredibly complicated. You basically need to see a financial advisor to get the benefit of it. And so we have these ideas and in principle or in theory, they seem like they're the right thing, but in practice, they're just, it's, it's very, it's confusing to say the least. And I think for the most part, people would be better off trying to build out wealth outside of super while also being mindful of future changes. Um, And there are some alternatives that we don't necessarily recommend, but just some things that people should look at if they're in that bucket, which is um, you could look at insurance bonds or investment bonds. So there are providers of this. This was actually the most popular thing before superannuation. It's uh, basically the same concept where you've got a separate tax structure or separate tax entity where the money goes into the insurance or investment bond it's held in there and then it's invested in things like managed funds or ETFs. There are fees that come with it. And then after 10 years, it can be tax-free. But then you can also have companies that are set up for the purpose of uh, investing. So if you uh, wanted to set up a company, you could do that. If you have a family trust where you've got your partner who has a lower uh, income, taxable income, maybe their tax rate is lower. So maybe there's an opportunity to send money to them. If you do consulting, um, you should also be aware of some of the there are some tax regulation around that. So make sure that you uh, speak to your tax agent or your financial advisor before you set one of those up, because that would be really important to get that right. Uh, but there are alternatives. And I just think in summary, mate, like I, I just, as a general rule, I think superannuation is a fantastic vehicle. And I think it is a, the closer you are to retirement, the more important it is to maximize your contributions. Conversely, the further away you are from retirement, 
the more mindful of the risks that you should be aware of and the, the, I think the more weighting you should place upon them. Yeah, legislative risk in super is uh, uh, quite immense, but I agree it's it's literally free money if you're sort of reaching that sort of above 40, 50 year of age Absolutely. in terms of maximising super. Um, lots and lots of interesting discussions. Um, you know, uh, uh, you sort of mentioned about, you know, setting up a company for investments uh, for those people affected uh, by that sort of above $3 million super cap tax, whatever, which of course is not official advice. Um, there's a lot of chatter amongst amongst listeners who've contacted me and that's that's kind of this sort of, a, you know, kind of the way that they're looking at, you know, don't, don't put too much money into super because who knows what's going to happen in the next sort of 10 or 20 years to set up a company and have an investment company because you've got a flat tax rate of 25 to 30 percent anyway, which is very, very similar. Now, this is turning out to be a pretty longish episode. We've got a lot more questions for Owen coming up. So we might stop right here and call this the end of part one. And in part two, we'll continue the conversation with Owen Rask from Rask Finance Group. Now, if you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter. And please leave a five-star rating on the podcasting platform that you may be using. Apple Podcast is the preferred platform, but you can use any platform or even leave five stars and beautiful reviews on all of the platforms. That's even better. A lot of thought and effort goes into these episodes. And remember, until next time, my name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Professional. Please stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.